All right, all right. Welcome back to Your Lux Ran Out. I'm your host, Julius Lux. If you're new here, welcome. This is just a sports podcasting show. Just another sports fan ranting about the sports world and what's going on. If you're joining in once again, thank you again. You know, it's always good to have my people listening. Appreciate all of you. Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Super Bowl Sunday, of course. We see the Rams have won their second Super Bowl in their franchise history. We got the Israel Adesanya Robert Whitaker rematch. Adesanya takes fight number two once again. He's 2-0 against Whitaker. We'll get into that. We also got updates on the MLB lockout. What's going on? New agreements have been made, yet spring training is now officially delayed, and we are getting close to that deadline the MLB made to fix their problems. They've got 10 days. So let's see what's going on in the MLB lockout. All right, what am I waiting for? Let's get into this right now. And we are off. We're going to start off with Super Bowl Sunday. The Rams, the Los Angeles Rams, they are your Super Bowl champions. They defeated the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20, the second title in their franchise's history. Cincinnati called for day off on school. I guess, it, you know, they got to remorse a little bit. They got to, you know, they got to process the loss. But, hey, I'll take, a, I'll take a free school day off if you ask me. Um, I guess you could say... Getting rid of every draft pick for the next 100 years for the Rams was worth it. Um, they got the job done in one year. They made a big trade in getting Matthew Stafford. They made a big trade in getting Von Miller. They signed OBJ. They got what they, you know, they they wanted. That was their goal. They were trying to take a step forward, a step up, when they acquired Matthew Stafford. Jared Goff, you know, he took him to a Super Bowl. How did that work out? I believe that was the Super Bowl where the Rams didn't even crack a touchdown. They lost 13-3 to the Patriots. Tom Brady getting his last Super Bowl title with the New England Patriots. And by far, that was probably like the most brutal Super Bowl I think I've ever watched in my lifetime. It was just, you know, the Rams only scored a field goal, and it was only 13-3. You at least want to see, you know, some fight in a, in a game. You know, they, they just seemed like there wasn't. I've never been more bored in watching a, a sports event in my life which is very rare for me to say. I'm usually never bored watching games, but I was bored watching that. But let's let's get back to the topic here. Aaron Donald finally got a ring. Good for him. Probably one of the, probably the best defensive player we have seen in this generation. They're making comparisons to Lawrence Taylor. I still don't think Donald is up to Lawrence Taylor's, you know, status. He's got all the accolades. I mean, we're going to get into we're going to get into his 8-year what he's done in 8 years. Pretty remarkable. And as I mentioned before, Matthew Stafford earning his first ring, 13th season in the NFL, first year with the Rams, boom, gets the ring on that finger. OBJ finally got a ring despite getting hurt in the second quarter, but I'm going to tell you that he was he was playing well. He was playing well, and he was making a statement. He was making a case to get some money in the offseason. Sean McVay, the youngest coach to win the Super Bowl. Andrew Whitworth, the oldest player to win their first Super Bowl. The offensive lineman played 11 years for the Bengals before going to the Rams, so he probably is ending his career defeating his old team to win his first Super Bowl. So that's pretty that's pretty awesome. Good for him. They are the second team to win the big game in their home stadium. And it's funny because last year was the first time. That was Tom Brady with the Buccaneers. So the only two times are back-to-back years. Pretty impressive. That's, that is impressive. Cooper Cup, the triple crown winner. The best wide receiver of the league this year. Offensive player of the year. 
makes the season more amazing by collecting the Super Bowl MVP. We're going to get into the stats for the Rams right now. Matthew Stafford, 26 of 40 for 283 yards, three touchdowns, two of them the Cooper Cup, one of them the OBJ. The two interceptions were probably, you know, you would say that's not his fault. The one deep pass, he was trying to make a play, but it was underthrown, so I guess you can blame that one on him. And then the tip pass into Chidobe Awuzie's hands. Those are always like the, the interceptions. You're like, that's not their fault. Those are always, you know, th- those are probably the worst feelings you can have as a quarterback is having an interception that isn't your fault. That's just me, though. He's the first quarterback to throw three touchdowns and not win the Super Bowl MVP. Cooper Cup, as I mentioned, he's already got two touchdowns in this game. He had 92 yards on eight receptions. He also got a huge, a huge seven-yard rush. It doesn't sound like a lot, but if you saw the play, it kept the Rams drive alive. That seven-yard rush happened to be the second most yards rushing by any Rams player in this game. We're going to get into that. OBJ had two receptions, 52 yards, and a touchdown, but he went out early. Knee issue. It looks like it was an ACL, maybe an MCL, and and it wasn't looking good. It wasn't looking good at all. He was ruled out early in the third quarter, so he missed the entire second half. That's unfortunate for him. Aaron Donald, four tackles, two sacks, two tackles for loss, of course, and three QB hits. Donald's resume in eight seasons. I told you we would get into this. Three defensive players of the year. Made the 2010 All-Decade team. Seven-time first All-Pro. Eight-time Pro Bowler. So every year he's made the Pro Bowl since he's been in the league. He was the Rookie of the Year in 2014. Now he's a Super Bowl champion. That resume is basically almost as equivalent to Giannis Antetokounmpo in the NBA. Of how dominant one player can be in a short period of time. It's, it's remarkable. And that's why we see the Lawrence Taylor comparisons. Now, what makes this more impressive is that Aaron Donald is not an end. He's not at the edge rushing in. He's in the middle. He's a defensive tackle. And he made probably the most impressive play I think I've ever seen in football that day where he pushed an offensive lineman off with one arm and made the stop with the other arm. That just shows you pure dominance. And we can get into the Lawrence Taylor, Aaron Donald comparisons as we go forward. What makes this game more interesting to the Rams is that their rush game was probably the worst we've ever seen in a Super Bowl. And also it is the worst performance for a winning Super Bowl team. We're going to get into that right now. Fewest rushing yards by any team to win the Super Bowl, as I mentioned. Cam Akers, 13 attempts, 21 yards. Brutal. Henderson had seven yards on four carries, and Sonny Michel barely sniffed the field. He had two carries, two yards. Cup, like I mentioned before, second most yards rushing, and he only did that in one play, which was the fourth and one in the fourth quarter. Huge seven-yard run that kept the drive alive and helped the Rams eventually win the game. The team rushed for a total of 43 yards on 23 carries. That's an average of 1.9 yards rushing that night. They are the fifth team in Super Bowl history to average fewer than two yards, and they are the only ones to come out victorious. The blocking was just not working for everybody. Um, We're going to enter the Bengals' statistics as well. Joe Burrow, 22 of 33, 263 yards, only one touchdown. T. Higgins, four receptions, 100 yards, two touchdowns. Jamar Chase had a nice game as well, five yards, 89 yards. Joe Mixon, 15 attempts, 72 yards, and he had a passing touchdown. Good for him. That was pretty funny to watch. You know, we like seeing those trick plays just pop up in the Super Bowl. Now we're going to get into the game in general. 
Why do we got to respect Matthew Stafford after this game? Because he won without any rushing help to break down the offense for the Rams. The Rams looked like they were flowing so well in the passing game early on. It started slow. You know, there was just not a whole lot of scoring. But then after the OBJ touchdown, it just seemed like, all right, the Rams are in this groove. OBJ gets that first tutty. Second quarter, he goes down with the knee injury, and the mojo is just wrecked. It's just like, great. Now we got to figure out a new game plan because the Rams' receiving depth was already shallow enough. We get into halftime. The Bengals score right out the gate. The Rams' first possession right after, Stafford's second interception. Cincinnati's offense gets right back on the field, and they can only cash in for a field goal. And I believe not scoring the touchdown on that drive really was a turning point because of the following. The Rams' defense shut down Cincinnati from that point on. So on a lot of the pass rush plays of the second half, Bill Barnell gets a lot of credit for this. He did a great article on analyzing the adjustments, so I got to give him credit. The Rams ran plays where they would show five, drop one into coverage, which allowed them to keep the benefit of the one-on-one matchups while staying safe with the coverage behind them. They brought Ernest Jones on some plays towards the line of scrimmage, sent him after Burrow as a part of a pressure play, and that was when Von Miller would drop back into coverage on the other side, allowing the Rams to rush four while still dropping seven into the pass coverage play, creating mismatches. We saw what we expected. The Rams' strength is the Bengals' weakness. The numbers back this up when the Rams win 82% of their pass rush attempts, making that percentage the most successful pass rush in any game of the NFL season. Cincinnati's block win percentage was 18%, which was a single worst in the NFL. Picking on Eli Apple, huge key for the Rams getting back on track. Cup kept finding ways to get open because that's what he does. He's just, you know, he, he moves, the way he moves, unbelievable, fast, will beat you anywhere. His route running is elite. Cup was moved out of the slot, lined up on the outside in the game winner to guarantee the 1v1 on Eli Apple. Boom, touchdown. Rams get ahead, eventually win the game. And what makes this more clutch is the fact that Beckham's injury, as I mentioned before, I thought was exactly what Cincinnati needed to win. Not in a bad way, but Beckham goes down. Higby's already not playing. The run game isn't working. The second best receiver at this point is Van Jefferson, who wasn't really threatening, and they lack depth in general in the receiving department. And the Rams still win the game. The trick plays in the first half were incredible for Cincy, as I mentioned before, the the pass touchdown from Joe Mixon. They were able to pick on the defensive backs that entire drive, most notably that touchdown. Cincinnati also caused Ramsey to give up 160 yards And a touchdown that he allowed was not really his fault, but we'll get to that. We got what we expected in terms of strength versus weakness. And what was interesting is that there were no turnovers for the Bengals. Now, we get into something that I'm sure all of you have recognized. Seems like it's not talked enough, but I'm going to get into it. That was probably one of the worst officiated football games I think I have ever witnessed. Not calling the Ramsey face mask to start off with. So we see it in real live action, and you just you, it's, too, it's too fast to see. You don't notice it. But when you see it on replay, Higgins damn near ripped Jalen Ramsey's head off. That missed call ended up being a 75-yard touchdown for T. Higgins on the best corner in the NFL, an all-pro, first-team all-pro. He previously got beaten by Jamar Chase earlier in the game, and as I mentioned before, he gave up 160 yards 
So it looked like Ramsey was just getting burned bad in live action and basically for that first half of that entire game. But in the replays, it was obvious. The officials even claimed after the game that there was no contact or flag on that play. Like, there was nothing wrong with it. After the game. And it looked obvious. A total of three penalties were called in the first half. A false start, a delay game, and an unsportsmanlike conduct. No judgment calls, no holdings, no pass interference. Only pre- or post-snap penalties were called. No penalties in the third quarter. In the first 13 minutes of the fourth quarter, just one penalty. Unnecessary roughness. So, I don't mind. I do not mind. We're going to do a game and there's no penalties called. I really don't mind. The game flowed by quick. Like, I don't, I don't like seeing a lot of flags being called. I personally don't in terms of watching a game. Watching 30 flags being thrown in a span of like a minute is just brutal to me. It takes forever. It's so slow. The pace is terrible. It just shows that each team is being sloppy. It's it's terrible to watch. It feels like I'm, I'm watching paint dry. But when you're calling no flags, and then we get this holding call in crunch time that will basically decide the Super Bowl, I don't know what the heck is going on. There were plenty of missed holdings, pass interferences. You look back into the Cooper Cup play where he wins a touchdown, multiple people had false starts. They missed that. We're going to look back at that holding call. Like I said, false starts happened. The officials let that play, which is fine. But when it comes to the biggest moment of the game, then you call a holding play that even the announcers and Mike Pereira disagree on the call. Then it's just, it's just terrible. Defenders are allowed to have their hands on the receiver. Obviously not too much. But if Wilson did commit a foul here, and it is debatable that he did, all that Cooper Cup did was have a slight twist in his hips, and that was just before the ball arrived. If there's a foul on that play... It should have been pass interference. The ball was already in flight. That's why. Instead, the call was for defensive holding, leading the world to be so confused on what the heck just happened. That you don't call the Ramsey foul, but you call the holding? It isn't holding. It does not follow the holding penalty requirements. So instead of a fourth and goal on the Rams eight, we get a first and goal on the fourth. And that is when Cooper Cup scores his second touchdown of the game. And the Rams lock in and win the Super Bowl. My point basically being is, if you're going to let him play, let him play. And you call, you call basically the only holding call in the entire game, which wasn't a hold, in the most crucial moment of the game that basically sent Cincinnati home and Los Angeles with a trophy. Not saying the Rams didn't deserve it. I believe, to be honest, if it was still 4th and 8, the Rams still could have found a way to get it done. I really do. Matthew Stafford is like that. He's proved it. Not just this year, but he's one of the most successful quarterbacks in the 4th quarter when trailing. So, as I mentioned before, if you're going to call a holding that is completely BS, and as I mentioned, you go back on the tape, watch the play of the holding call. There are about 3 or 4 false starts it's obvious. It, it stands out like a sore thumb. But congrats to the Rams. I'm not hating on it. It's just the referees got to just do better. And, you know, we got we got an amazing halftime show. You know, Dr. Dre put on a show, gave the crowd what he wanted, surprised us with 50 Cent. I wasn't surprised because how do you how do you leave 50 Cent out? 50 Cent is a part of the Slim Shady Aftermath Records, you know? You can't leave. You can't leave 50 out of there. I even told my friends, I was like, they can't leave 50 out. I didn't say he was going to show up, but I said you just can't leave him out, and they bring him. Kendrick Lamar, Eminem, 
you know, Mary singing her her vocals off, Snoop Dogg, of course. Everybody did well. It was a, it was an awesome Super Bowl. I was jamming, good time. It was a good time. So congrats to the Rams, Aaron Donald. You got your ring, Stafford. You got your ring, Los Angeles. You finally get another ring in terms of your football department. You know, it's a good it's a good time to be a, a Los Angeles fan. You know, the Dodgers have won, the Lakers have won, and now the Rams have won in recent years. So congrats to them. We now shift our focus to the UFC. Israel Adesanya, Robert Whitaker, rematch, middleweight title. As Israel Adesanya remains undefeated in the middleweight class, winning by unanimous decision in the rematch against Whitaker. A lot of head scratches there because a lot of people didn't think that it was unanimous. A lot of people didn't even think Adesanya deserved to win. Whitaker came out ready to fight and fought way better than he did in round one. This fight went the distance. Round one, Adesanya was off to a hot start. He was firing leg kicks, just attacking the leg, chopping the wood, chopping the wood. And then Adesanya eventually drops Whitaker with a right hand, but the former champion gets right back up on his feet. Second round, Whitaker seems a little more anxious. He, he got anxious early in the fight, but he, he eventually calms down, but we'll get to it. Second round, Whitaker lands a few good hits. Adesanya continues with the leg kicks. Whitaker secures his first takedown, but Adesanya gets right back up on his feet. And it was a much better round for Whitaker. And this is where we start to see Bobby Knuckles get into a much more comfortable groove. He's more relaxed than he was in general when Israel Adesanya was in front of his face. And this is where we get into it. Round three occurs. Whitaker with a few jabs, plenty of them. He landed a lot of hits in this round. This one was definitely, you know, he won this round by far. He secures a takedown. However, to the champion's credit, Adesanya improved. His takedown defense tremendously in this fight. He gets right back on up. Then we shift to round four. Body kicks for Adesanya. He was doing a tremendous job with those leg kicks. Just abusing, like I said, chopping the wood is what I've heard in the UFC terms. When you're just kicking and kicking, you're chopping the wood down. Whitaker lands a few hits, gets a takedown. Adesanya is able to get him right off as he was trying to climb on Adesanya's back. Gets him right off. Fifth and final round. Not a lot of people thought this would go the distance, but after Whitaker... You know, improved his game plan. And Adesanya, you know, too, you, not surprised about it. Not surprised he came with a different approach. But he knew he had to do a little dirty work to get through this fight. And it went the distance. Round five, Adesanya again with the leg kicks. And I think this won him the fight. was the fact that he landed the majority of the leg kicks he delivered. So with all the kicks, Adesanya gets a takedown in this round. And I believe this was huge. Whitaker eventually escapes. And he gets another takedown. The problem with Whitaker's takedowns is that they were not successful enough. He got the takedowns, but Adesanya tremendously improves the takedown defense after allowing seven in his last fight where he had lost. Izzy was more aggressive this fight than he was in his last because Robert Whitaker was so was overly aggressive. Adesanya just played the pace, waiting for the right moment, and bam, was able to knock him out. This fight, Adesanya was more aggressive but not taking the chances of being taken down because he knew if there was a good takedown, he was not escaping. But Whitaker was able to secure a lot, plenty of takedowns. Adesanya got right back on up. So it was good that he did show confidence in being more aggressive while being cautious at the same time. To put it in other words, he used his extensive reach to his advantage. Whitaker did a way better job, obviously, than the first fight. He went the distance, more prepared, got more comfortable, and he seemed more under control, and he seemed to control the fight at one point. But obviously, Adesanya wins the fight. The rematch belongs to Adesanya. He's up 2-0 against Whitaker, 
and Adesanya remains undefeated in the middleweight class as well as the middleweight champion. Major League Baseball, blackout updates. Apparently, there are new agreements made, reportedly new agreements. The universal DH, meaning there will be a designated hitter in the American League and the National League. This was a brief stint that happened in the 2020 shortened season. The DH was first used in the American League in 1973. Ron Bloomberg was the first, if y'all needed to know. A draft lottery. I really want to see how this goes. A draft lottery. Creation of a bonus pool to reward top-performing pre-arbitration players. And then eliminating draft choice compensation for free agents. Draft compensation for losing qualifying free agents has existed in various forms since 1978. In that class of free agents, four teams became the first teams to receive first-round draft picks for losing players in free agency. Several additional compensation picks were awarded that year as well after the second and third round picks. That seems to be eliminated. I'm just curious about the draft lottery, to be honest. Like, I love the idea. It eliminates tanking. It eliminates, you know, being the having the worst record just so you get the first pick or a top pick. I really like the idea. However, it's not going to be like the NBA. In the NBA, like 14, 15 teams get lottery picks. It's much easier for that than it is in the MLB. Why? Because less, te- less teams make the playoffs. You have the two wild cards. They square up to face the top seed, which could either be the division winner in the East, Central, or West. So technically, four teams make the playoffs. And then if you count the wild card matchup, that'll actually be five because that'll be one extra team, but they get sent home early. So let's just say five teams make the playoffs, if we're going to do it this way. That means 25 other teams are in the lottery. I still don't know how it's going to be done. There hasn't been anything else. But a lottery of 25 teams, that could shake things up if it goes the wrong way. If a team that barely misses the playoffs gets a top, like, 10 pick, that's going to be just as, you know, crazy as the Pelicans winning the lottery when they got Zion Williamson or even Anthony Davis. Because there's those conspiracies that the the Pelicans fixed the lottery so they could get Anthony Davis. That didn't really work out anyways for that organization anyhow. But moving forward, another update was given by Jeff Passan around 2 o'clock yesterday. He said the MLBPA backed off its request for arbitration for all players with two-plus years of service, requesting said 80% of the players go into the system. Additionally, the union requested an increase in its pre-arbitration pool for about $100 million to $115 million. No deal, of course, and we are now 10 days from the deadline that MLB set for the regular season to be on time. Pitchers and catchers were supposed to report earlier this week as well, so we are now officially in a delay when it comes to spring training. Now, Major League Baseball and the Players Association now plan to hold multiple bargaining sessions next week. So over the course of next week, we should be getting updates. We should be knowing what's going on because February 28th is the deadline according to MLB when it comes to, you know, solving the problems. But it seems like there's no prog- like progression at all. There seems to be no progress at all. Nothing's really happening. And like I said, we are delayed in spring training. And I honestly thought after the Super Bowl, there would be, you know, some solid improvements. Not there, but something. So I don't know if these agreements that were reported are, you know, the the centerpiece of, you know, progression, but if that's the case, then I think there's still a long way to go because there's a lot of, you know, problems with, you know, balancing the taxes and paying minor leaguers and so forth. So we're going to have to get into that once we get, we know more. And this sucks for me personally, you know, baseball is my favorite sport. As some of you know, I played 17 years. 
I love spring training. It's in, it's in my state. It's in Florida. Nothing local necessarily. The closest is Port St. Lucie, the Mets. The Washington Nationals used to be in my hometown in Vieira. Not my necessarily hometown, but in my county. The Braves used to be at Disney, which is an hour away from me. Now all the teams just seem to be above, you know, two hours. Like the Tigers are in Lakeland. Mets, I said, Port St. Lucie. The Yankees are in Tampa. It's, you know, it's not as fun now that the teams are farther away. You got the Marlins, the Cardinals, they share a complex in Jupiter. The Nationals now actually share a complex with the Houston Astros in West Palm. So all these places have a little bit of distance for me. So I really like watching spring training, like seeing the young guys work with the veterans. It's a nice little time. I know some of the players, you know, they're not fans of it. And who really is a fan of it? If you're playing, you got to go, you know, you practice it every day. But you know what? It's the fun for, you know, makes running around getting autographs as a fan is so fun. Watching your idols practice, take batting practice, throw bullpens. It's fun. As you get older, you know, it is, you get used to it. It's probably a little bit of a pain, but you know what? You got to get ready for the season. I have so many memories of spring training. My dad took me all the time when I was younger. And, you know, since now I'm not playing baseball anymore, we were hoping to continue that tradition, but it doesn't look like it the way the lockout's going. I mean, I've seen so many legends in front of me. I saw Bryce Harper when he was first invited to spring training, his first time with the Washington Nationals, invited to camp. I saw Jose Fernandez right in front of my face the year before he passed away, sadly. I mean, I've seen Derek Jeter, Albert Pujols, Vladimir Guerrero, Hall of Famers. And like I said, the Nationals were about 20 minutes from where I was. So it was always fun. I mean, Ryan Zimmerman, seeing him every year was just like a tradition. Steven Strasburg, when Max Scherzer went to the Nationals, like Gio Gonzalez, Adam LaRoche, we had a lot of good names in the Washington Nationals back then, and they were right by me. I watched them practice so many times, watched them play so many times. It was a really good time, and I miss it. I miss them being right there. And you know what? It's worth the drive, but I want to be able to actually see them. So the MLB needs to, you know, we, we need to figure this out. You got 10 days till your deadline. It looks like it's not going to meet the deadline. But, you know, if the talks go well, you never know. So that's what's going on, and your luck's ran out. We hope to see you next week. Hope you guys tune in and enjoy this episode and a little bit of my stories of spring training. I had to add them in. You know, it's fun. There's nothing better than, you know, America's greatest pastime. You know, sports are, you know, they're, they're a gift to us. Sports are. Sports and music is that element in culture where everyone just seems to come together. You know, hate stops. Everyone's so passionate. Everyone's so amped up and hyped enjoying the moment and that's what makes sports great so next time on your lux ran out i'll see you this is julius lux and i'm signing off till next time